All right, my hand's kind of tired from doing all that drawing the other day, so <laughs> no, that wasn't, that wasn't me. It would look a lot worse than that if that was me. So, hey, welcome to Parkview. I'm glad you're here. My name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you're new today, um, very warm welcome to you. Glad you're here. I'll be, usually I'm out in the foyer when you take that left turn, and it'd be great to meet you if we haven't met before. So another way you can let us know you're here is the bulletin you got when you came in. You'll notice the bottom part tears off, and you can fill that out and let us know you're here. Um, or if you come here regularly and you want to let us know how we can pray for you, how we can serve you, you can use that as a way to communicate with us. So also, if you're new here, there's some people that'll be waiting to meet you at the Connect counter out there. They have a gift for you, and they can just fill you in on how to get more connected here at Parkview. So it's great to have you here. So, and if you are new and we right away hit you with a video on money, sorry about that, but actually not too, because we are a church that really does believe that God has blessed us to be a blessing to our city and to the world. So really ask uh, our regular tenders members to be praying about how God is going to move you to give this year in Thanksgiving offerings. So thank you for that. So um, I want to introduce you to a guest. The last couple of weeks, you can come on up, Dan. The last, uh, this fall as a church, we've been studying through the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters. And when you go through the book of Genesis, there's uh, a lot of questions that can come up, uh, particularly in the realm of science and faith. And so during the Genesis series this fall, we've had three different classes. We've had one, tonight will be the second one, called Exploring Genesis. So that'll be tonight from six to eight. And tonight, the focus is going to be on some of the science behind uh, the book of Genesis. So this guy standing next to me is Dr. Dan Rao. His wife, Amy, is sitting over there uh, with my family. Dan and Amy uh, were students here at the University of Iowa. He got his doctorate here in 2001 in microbiology. But also during those five years they were in Iowa City, Dan and Amy teamed with uh, a bunch of people that were serving high school kids at that time. And Amy had a group of girls that kept growing around her, people meeting Jesus and growing, and Dan helped with a group of guys. And what was so cool about these guys is when they graduated from Iowa City, left Iowa City, they didn't just leave with a degree, but they left with some lives that they had invested in during their years here to the point that many of those, they're now adults, but many of those that then kids are still in touch with these guys and, and inviting them into key decisions in their lives. So it's a beautiful picture of how God can use uh, grad students, undergrads, you guys, like you're not just here to get a degree, you're here to invest. And so it's really cool. So what Dan has done now is he's finished a postdoctorate in microbiology at a prominent Midwest university. He's on the faculty of that university now doing cancer research. And so he also has a passion though for the Bible and science and how the two don't contradict each other, but they really do line up together. So Dan, I was going to have you just kind of share with everybody like where that passion came from for defending the Bible and, and with science. Yeah, I, uh, I was a kid that born and raised in the church. My parents were missionaries. I, I loved, I, I believed everything. I believed the stories that they taught me in Sunday school, right? And then I got to high school and my teachers were telling me something that was completely different, which I thought was a joke, right? That randomness and billions of years. And so I came home and I'm like, okay, now what do we say? Like, what do the Christians say? And there's those people are there to steal your faith. Just get through the class and, oh, no, no, right. But what do you, like the answer to the question though. And I couldn't find Christian adults in my life that would answer this question. And it got really weird and they would just kind of, well, we just, we just don't know. We have faith, you know. It, 
is our faith built on a house of cards? Like, is this all smoke and mirrors because we're afraid that there really isn't a heaven or a hell? Like, these are the kinds of questions I'm asking as a sophomore in high school. And I found the church wasn't uh, a place to get answers. Uh, and you know what I love about what's happening here is this is a church that isn't afraid to find those answers. And I just want to give Doug a plug here. So those years from the time I was a sophomore in high school until the time I was uh, midway through undergrad, those were a time when I was trying to figure out whether I was going to buy this whole thing or not, right? Because it needs to make sense. It can't just be that, oh, yeah, there's that and that, and we just don't talk about it. It all has to go together. And I was a fragile guy, but I was passionate, and I wanted to believe. And then I come to this place, Iowa City, and there's a guy, Doug, and some other guys like Mark Mesnick in the church. They come alongside a young guy like me, and they build into me, and they got up at 6 in the morning to do Bible study with me and just really mentor me. And I got to tell you, if you guys have a church where there's men like this that will take a young guy like me under their wing, there's fruit that can be born decades later in a man's life. So praise God for Doug. I'm going to give him a hug in front of everybody. I love you, brother. Sorry, I know you, you weren't expecting that. I had to say it. So you were going to talk about, oh yeah. So that's where it birthed from then. Uh, a couple other things about Dan. He's an elder in his church. He was part-time youth pastor in that church while getting his postdoctorate while doing cancer research. And then the latest passion is that uh, God's grabbed his heart about an orphan ministry in Uganda. And uh, it's just blowing him away and about what God's doing there. And uh, he has seven kids. So can you say high capacity? Like that's this guy right here. Um, but uh, there's a love and a passion for God and his word undergirding all of this. So um, in fact, last night he was doing a missions conference talking about this Uganda ministry. So he didn't roll into our house. I kind of faintly heard him at about 1.30 or 2. So, and he's here with us today. So why don't you give us a quick snapshot of what you're doing tonight? Yeah, yeah. so for me, it's, I really have to know, is the Bible really true or not? And you know, in Romans chapter 1, it says that the creation itself is evidence for a creator, right? You don't even need a Bible or the name Jesus or anything. You're on a deserted island, and all you have is the stars and the trees. That's enough, right, for you to go through judgment. And so I want to know, is, is nature really enough to prove that there's a creator, to prove that the Bible is true? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about DNA evidence from genetics and cell biology that you guys, your faith is 100% founded in the truth and it can be proven by science and not just scripture. So the second hour will be Q&A, just opening up. So if you can make it tonight, we'd love to have you there. Can you give Dan a round of applause for being with us today? So. All right. So... Um, we, uh, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about Noah, all right? And so uh, I, just, I wish I could just kind of do a, a mind cleanse of Noah, because I know what immediately comes to mind a lot of times is this goofy guy wearing a yellow raincoat and a little pointed goofy face, all these cute little like animals with huge eyes around him, right? So I just, man, the guy is absolutely heroic. We're going to look at his life today. And um, so just to catch you up quickly, Gen we've, we're in Genesis 6 now. Genesis 1 and 2, God makes the heavens and the earth. And chapter 2 circles in on God making the first 
people. And so what we see right away out of the shoot, Genesis 1 and 2, is that God is great, that God is almighty, he's powerful. Uh, these words were originally spoken to God's people when they were leaving Egypt, 400 years in captivity, a lot of different worldviews, a lot of different gods they were being invited to worship. In Genesis 1 and 2, God says, hey, don't look at any other god, just look at me. I'm the creator, I'm the greatest, you know, I'm above all gods, and I love you. I made you to bless you. But we see in Genesis 3, we see the fall where the first man and woman chose not to believe that. They rejected that. There was pride and arrogance in that where they didn't, they doubted God that he's great and good. And so they made their own call. They sinned against God. And so now we see we live in a broken world, a sinful world. Chapter 4, we see the first murder. One brother killed another. And at the end of chapter 4, you see a guy that's even gloating even in greater ways about his sin. So we pick up on the story of Noah. It's about 1,500 years later, and the spiral downward has just been accelerating faster and faster and faster. But with the story of Noah, what we're going to learn is that God loves, God is a God who makes new beginnings even in the darkest of times so that he can continue his plan to bless humanity and bless all the nations of the earth, all right? So it's really written to people, again, the original audience lived in a very dark time. It was hard. They were persecuted, and they're asking the question, okay, God, what do you want from us? How do you want us to live? And Noah stands out strong to us this morning of a follower of God who lives in a world that can be very dark, in a world where you can be oppressed and singled out. What is God looking for from us? So um, the story goes through four chapters of Genesis. So I promise we'll get you out of here at 3.30, okay? Now, I'll do my best. We'll just hammer through it. Now, we're going to have to hopscotch a little bit, but I want to start talking about Noah from one verse in the New Testament. So if you could stand up with me, we'll read Hebrews 11.7. We'll pray, and then we'll start listening and learning from God about this, this man, Noah. So Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let me pray for us. Father, would you teach us this morning from your word in a very clear way? We are a needy people. We have many questions about how to live out our lives today in a world where a lot of times we look around and it seems it's hard. It seems it's not right. It seems it's broken. We're also people, though, honestly, when we look inside our own lives, we see a lot of the same things. God, what do you want from us? How are you calling us to walk and what kind of God are you? Can we trust you in days like this? Can you speak clearly through your word to us today? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys grab a seat. All right, so when I look at the four chapters we're looking at, there were three kind of verbs, three actions of God that stood out to me. God sees, God judges, and God remembers. All right, so God sees, God judges, God remembers. Let's look at what God sees in, in Genesis chapter 6. When God looked at the world, what did he see? So I'm going to read, and again, if you have a Bible open and can just follow along, that would help you, or the verses will also be on the screen. Again, we're covering four chapters, but we're just hopping between passages, okay? So here we go. So it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination, listen to that, Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Then you jump down to chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, 
it was corrupt. So I gave you a quick glimpse from the first sin in Genesis 3, the first murder in chapter 4, to the celebration and the kind of the brazen response to a murder at the end of chapter 4, that now we've just been on a downward trajectory for 1,500 years to the point where every thought, every inclination of a human heart was evil all the time. This is one of the darkest times in the Bible. The, the world was violent. The world was destructive. The world was turning on itself. The world was destroying itself. And so it was so wicked that there's some strange illusions, even at the start of chapter 6, that, that people were literally just inviting the presence of demonic forces into their lives. Again, it's kind of obscure, but what's going on? But I don't know how else uh, these chapters could paint a darker picture to us of what the world was like in Genesis chapter 6. And God saw the wickedness on the planet. God saw even the thoughts of every human heart being evil all the time. It's the darkest time in the Bible. But then God also saw something else. In Genesis 6-8, it says that God saw a righteous person, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and that Noah walked with God. Those are remarkable statements, especially considering when those statements were lived out by this man named Noah. He was the first person in the Bible that was called righteous. In a world that was so dark and violent and rebellious against God, Noah was blameless. And the word was that he walked with God. It's a very special phrase in the Bible. It, it connotes a relationship, a dependence, one where there's conversation, there's prayer, there's trust, there's love. In the darkest time, there was one that God saw was walking with him. Noah lived to please God and not his culture. And how hard, just think, that would be to be the one who is standing out in such a dark time. A couple weeks ago, had a great conversation uh, with a student who was already thinking about going home uh, for Thanksgiving and how hard that's going to be. This student is a new believer within the last year, loves Jesus, loves living out their faith, but now is realizing I'm going home to a place where that faith has been challenged, has been mocked. I've been mocked. And so what do I do? Do I even go home? And if I go home, how do I witness in a place like that? Some of you have families like that. Or just by, because you're following God, you can be mocked and, and ridiculed and just totally disrespected. Some of you guys are in workplaces like that. Some of you guys might be in dorm floors like that or classrooms like that. There's a group of, uh, of high school students, Lori and I have gotten to know the last couple years. And it's interesting that a common refrain among them as we gather in different homes and study the Bible together, uh, it's, it's almost like there's a line they've rehearsed, but I think it comes from a genuine place. They say, it's really nice to be in a place where I'm with a group of people that believe what I believe. It's very hard in our world today to identify as a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but like even uh, swear words, have you noticed that it's totally open game? Like anything, you know, Jesus, Christ, uh, God, blank, you know, like it's totally fine to throw those open. How come like we don't hear any of that from other religious leaders? Like sometimes a good swear word has that boom, boom, like two good punches. Guys, there's some names I could break into two syllables from other faith traditions that I won't would be awesome swear words too, right? But how come it's only like it's open season on Christians, on Jesus, on, in our culture today? And there are many places where you probably feel like a minority, like everything else is going the other direction. 
Or there might be times you look around and you're just so angered at, wow, the choices people are making, the way there's violence and people are being oppressed and there's no justice and those kind of things you're just looking around. Can you just imagine, not to belittle our scenario, but here's this man, Noah, in the darkest time, the most violent time, he alone is walking with God and God sees this righteous person. Noah was a man of integrity. He did what was right, even when everybody else was compromising. And so he was a man, again, described as walking with God. To walk with God means you're trusting God, you're listening to God. There's a relational connection with God. It reminds me of when Jesus says to us as his followers, Jesus says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, that was what stood out about Noah is that he, he knew God. God wasn't just this distant religious figure that was handing him a bunch of rules to live by, but Noah depended on God. He lived in God's presence, and he obeyed God out of his love for God, just like Jesus invites us to obey him out of our love for him. And I don't know if you heard the promise from Jesus, but Jesus says, if you obey me, then I will reveal myself to you. Uh, verse 23 in John 14 says, uh, my father and I will make our home with you. Like there's a beautiful, even in the harshest context, to live out your faith. When you walk in trust and obedience with God, God promises you his presence and his power and his provision. And Noah is a man that in the darkest of times followed God and experienced those things. And so I want to give you a picture as we walk through. Again, we can't cover every detail of the story, but as we cover some of them, I want you to give you a glimpse into what it took for Noah to obey God, all right? Let me remind you what we read in Hebrews eleven seven: By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Like, Noah is going to hear of concepts that he had no idea about, but he's going to be called to obey regardless, all right? So I want you to watch for that as we go through some of these details. In uh, Genesis 6, verse 13, God spoke to Noah three different times. Here's, here's the first time. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with all the earth. So make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. All right, so then he goes on to describe the dimensions. The size First of all, let me just grab the word ark. Literally meant box. Don't think ship, okay? Think box. Think large rectangular box. Here are the dimensions. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. So there were three levels in this ark. As people have done the calculations there, volume-wise, this would have the equivalent of the capacity of 522 livestock cars, which would hold 125,000 sheep. Sheep being kind of an average size animal. You could go smaller, bigger, and get 125,000 animals on this thing. So, so I don't know, Noah's sitting here thinking, I want you to build a box, I'm gonna rescue you and your family. You're probably thinking, okay, yeah, probably eight by 10 or uh, 15 by 20, we can do that. And then God rolls out the dimensions. He's going, whoa, like, so already, like, judge the earth, what is that? What do you mean? build an ark, build a big boat, a box, uh, and he's hundreds of miles from a major body of water. It's not like he's right on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. This whole concept of flood, 
of rain even. It hadn't rained up until this point on the earth. These are concepts that God is tossing out there to Noah, and Noah is called to obey. Noah was given one commandment, build an ark, one commandment for 120 years before he would see anything coming out of his obedience. Why don't you attach that to like, what's something God's calling you to believe right now, and it's hard, but I'm going to hang on, God, for a day or two, and then I'm going to see you answer me, right, God? Like, I'm going to see why I'm obeying you here, God, right? And so Noah had one commandment for 120 years, okay? So um, give you an idea of what he's going through. Verse 17, behold, I will bring a flood of waters. Again, that's a whole new concept. What's flood? What do you mean? Because up until now, everything was watered from within the ground. Flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. You will come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Again, new concepts of flood, of rain. In fact, then there's more detail here about taking two of every kind of species onto the ark with you. Not a lot of instruction about how you're supposed to go. Basically just an assumption and, and a statement that the animals will come to you. I will do this for you. So there's a lot to conjecture about how he got the animals. Here is a far side rendition of how that may have gone. So when the cats were getting on the ark, apparently, according to Farside, you've got two dogs standing right by Noah saying, check their papers. They're probably forged. That's that one. The other one is saying, uh, they'll scratch the furniture. They're carrying ringworms. So just trying to keep the cats off. I don't know if that happened or not yet. So, but that may have happened there. But we do know that God supernaturally enabled Noah to get all the animals on the ark. So the conclusion statement about Noah and this this massive command that concerned things that Noah had no idea about. Chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. He obeyed one command for 120 years without seeing results along the way. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. I don't know if you know this detail of the story, but that Noah and his family and all the animals got on the ark and they shut the door and it started raining right away, right? No, it didn't. It didn't start raining for seven days. Like, you've made them wait 120 years, God. Like, and then you're gonna make them sit in there for seven more days. Can you imagine the taunting going on through this whole thing? Like, hey, no, what you building? Like, hey, no, what are you doing? And you're talking about flood and rain. They have no idea what that is or that God's gonna judge the world. The taunting must have been horrific through all of this. But can you imagine those last seven days? Hey, where's the rain? Hey, where's the flood? Where's the... So, but to the very end, Noah obeyed God and God saw that. So in probably the hardest time to be a follower of God, God saw Noah, and God saw Noah's obedience. So remember, we've talked about this throughout Genesis. Remember that uh, this is true. This is historical. And there's a reason why God is recording these stories for us. And again, the immediate audience would have been that crew leaving Egypt. They'd been in slavery 400 years. Like, is our God really the true God? But there's another message God is saying to his people even early on, and that he's saying to us today, that he said to his people throughout time, is that it will, it will not be easy to follow me on this planet. You live in a world that's going to reject me, that's going to reject my son, my savior, it's going to reject my teachings. So how do you live? Noah stands out to us 
as one who lived in obedience and who walked with God. Second Peter, there's a lot of references to Noah in the New Testament. Second Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So as he's building this ark, he's warning the people. He probably had a very simple sermon that he gave every day. It's going to rain. You guys better repent. God's coming, right? So, but he did that for 120 years. He didn't just quietly work on an ark, but he also proclaimed the teachings and the truth of God. And so Hebrews 11:7 also has a, a, a special word in there where it says that he did his work with reverent fear. That's a worship tone, that, that for Noah, building the ark wasn't like, oh, I can't believe I got to build this ark. Like he did that out of his reverence and his worship of God. So he did it passionately. There was some joy in this. Um, there was just an awe that he got to represent God and serve God. And so as God is painting a picture to his people and to us today, how do you live in a world that isn't going to completely always agree with you and isn't going to believe in God and the things of God? He's saying, well, you obey me you walk with me, you trust me. When you do your work, you do it passionately, you do it well, you do it joyfully. And then when you get opportunities, you proclaim what's true. You talk about who God is and how he is blessing you. And so that's what Noah did. And so that's what God is calling. How do we live, God, in this world where we look around and see brokenness? You live like Noah. Obey God, do your work with reverent awe, and you proclaim God's truth, all right? So there's a verse in the Bible. We just said God saw all this. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it says the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth so he can strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. Those same eyes that saw Noah and saw the wickedness in Genesis 6 see us this morning. So what is God seeing in our hearts? Like is he seeing obedience? Is he seeing reverent awe? And is he seeing people who are ready to take a stand for him in a dark world? So God sees, that's the longest one of the three, okay? If you're watching your watch, we're moving here. The next one is God judges, all right? God judges. Then we're going to jump to chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. And this is not an easy section to teach, but this is the truth, and this is, this is our God. So chapter 7, verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, uh, and all mankind Guys, these are people. These are image bearers of God. These are uh, people just like us. This is, these are hard words to read. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, and the birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. The Bible is super clear that God judges sin. He is a just God. And we don't like to talk about that. Like we love talking about God as our father. God is our provider. God is loving. God is gracious. God is patient. All those things are absolutely true. But it's also true that God is a judge. That God is holy. That God cannot stand sin. And so uh, while we bristle at this concept of God being judged, it is absolutely part of his character. And if God was not a just God, to be honest with you, he would not be worthy of our worship. How many times, maybe it's hard to tell today because we see so many heinous things in the news that just keep grabbing our attention or maybe ones that hit your heart and just make you so angry. Uh, the, the family, the children, the women uh, going to a wedding a week ago just across the Mexican border, just totally just decimated uh, by a drug cartel. Like you read stuff like that and just the anger, just the, you know, 
just anger. Like, stop that. Like, who's going to cut that out? Who's going to, you know, and so if we had a God who saw those kind of things happening and just kind of went, oh, well, no, that's, that's too bad. Like, we would, like, we, there's parts in us even, we're not, a per, we're not perfect, we're sinful people, but we see things like that and we go, something's got to change. Like, something's got to stop. And so if we had a God who's just completely indifferent at pain and suffering and sin, he would not be worthy of our praise. But here's, here's something else. Let me commend you to, uh, this book is called Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, written by Rebecca McLaughlin. And chapter 12 in here, I have uploaded into our Genesis resource file. I, I highly recommend it to you. And uh, McLaughlin says it was the hardest chapter to write. The hardest question for Christians to answer today is how could God send people to hell? I see that question being really closely linked to how could God flood the earth? And so um, there's some important things we need to understand about the justice of God, about God being judged. And here's the, the biggest takeaway. So I commend that reading to you. It's very well written. But I, here's what I'm encouraging you to do, is that when God judges, God, it's not like God's got all these characters on one side that we like. Oh, he's loving and he's good and he's powerful. But oh man, there's this quality he's got over here where he's a judge. Man, I just don't like that part of God. Man, he's having a, a bad day. Man, just keep me away from that God. We need to understand that God's justice is tucked within all of his other attributes. So when he's acting in justice, he doesn't stop being holy. He doesn't stop being loving. He doesn't stop being gracious and patient and merciful. Like all of who he is, is, is tied up in his person. So when he acts as a judge, there's no friendly fire. God doesn't say, oops. Or God doesn't say, oh man, I'm sorry, I made a mistake there. I, you were innocent. There's no innocent bystanders. Like when God judges, it's always spot on exactly where it is meant to be delivered and needs to be delivered. And it's been filtered through his grace, his kindness, his patience, all that God is. That's why we can trust. It's hard, but we can trust God as judge. There's no other person we can put in that place that we would totally trust with all authority, all power, and the ability to judge. But, but just realize as much as we love the love of God and the grace of God, the justice of God fits perfectly with all of his qualities. And so um, when God acted here in Genesis 6, it was because every inclination of every heart was evil all the time. There had never been such darkness on the planet. And God had shown grace to these people. He warned us in Genesis 3, when you sin, there will be death. He gave them a righteous man, Noah, who was building a 450-foot boat. Like you had a biggest object lesson in your face to remind you that something's coming. And yet these people ran through every stop sign. And so, and so um, God is the perfect judge. He is gracious, merciful, and he will judge and confront sin. And so before we move off that point, we just got to be honest. Like the Bible doesn't just talk about Genesis 6 and the flood being when God judges. Let me just show you two passages. Hebrews 9.27 says, this is for all of us, it is destined for a person to die once and after that to face judgment. That's every one of us has an appointment. We don't have an uh, expiration date stamped on our armpit. Oh good, I've got another five years. Okay, I'm good to go. Like we don't know when that day is coming. And so God in his love reminds us of that, that there is a day coming. And it's interesting in Matthew 24, Jesus talked about a macro judgment, that when he returns, and he linked it to the days of Noah, he said, he said, as it were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, uh, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So uh, it's a wake-up call for us this morning. I thought we were just talking about the guy in the boat and the raincoat and all these big-eyed animals. It's like, no, the story of Noah says that we have a God who judges. And the, the story of Noah tells us that God will warn us, God will advise us that that day is coming. But the story of Noah tells us that a lot of people just fly right by that. It doesn't even compute. And so a loving God is saying to us this morning, are you ready for judgment? Are you ready uh, to face the justice of God? And that's why, you guys, this last point is super important, that God remembers, okay? So as God sees, God judges, but God remembers. Uh, Genesis 8.1 says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. In the Old Testament, the idea of remembering had these kind of nuances. It is an expression of God's faithful love for his people and his intervention for his people. When you see the concept of remembering, it implies that God is moving toward his people in their greatest time of need. It is true that God judges sin, but what's important here in in this concept of God remembering is that God moves toward sinners. God moves toward us, all right? So, So it's important for us uh, to remember that. And so, um, especially uh, today, um, as God's people trying to live as a minority, as in a world where God is not honored, God is not obeyed, where you could be persecuted, you could be made fun of, God is coming. God will deliver you. God will uh, back up your times of obeying him, and it will be worth it to follow God. There's that side of it, but there's also the side that God has come to rescue you, because uh, just, um, and not, yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit, but, but there's no one on this planet who is righteous. There's no one that when God is judging, he's going to go, oh man, you're good. I don't need to judge you, okay? Let me go, like every one of us has sinned and fallen short of God's glory, the Bible says. So, but God remembered us. So he remembered Noah and that he rescued him. He rescued Noah and his family. And then God also restores uh, what was broken, so this, this world was not, you know, when you're getting to Genesis 6, that was not the world of Genesis 2. I don't know if you were with us then, but in Genesis 1 and 2, everything was very good. Like it was beautiful. God was in charge. God was blessing his people. They were following him. That's what God intended. But you get to Genesis 6, things were so broken and so restor- disruptive that God remembered what he had intended. And so God hit the major reset button. He says, I'm going to blot out sin. I'm going to blot out all that's happening, and we're going to do a redo. We're going to restore what I intended here. And so an interesting study for you, if you have um, some time or you're curious, you could take the teachings of Genesis 1 and 2 and then lay them side by side with Genesis 9. And you'll see so many themes that are in common. Just like when God created the earth the first time, Genesis 1 and 2, you'll see a lot of the same uh, kind of concepts as God is kind of doing a do-over, as God is restoring what has been broken. So you'll see things like um, the spirit or the wind of God over the waters on the earth, or you'll see God give the same promise to Noah that he gave to Adam and Eve when he said, be fruitful and might multiply, like I will bless you. It says the exact same things to Noah. So you see here that as God is remembering, as God is moving toward his people in time of need, he's doing that to rescue them, from his judgment, and he's doing that to restore them to what he intended to be true in their lives. 
So uh, no matter, here's kind of the message from God to his people of all time, that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how outnumbered you are, God can make new beginnings to continue his plan to bless you and to bless all the nations of the earth. And that is a great, great hope for us. And so the invitation to us that we see in the life of Noah is to walk with God, to trust him, to obey him, uh, to be a uh, preacher of righteousness and to work hard as in uh, your worship to the Lord, joyfully, passionately. That's how he's calling us to live. And so we, last weekend, if you were with us, we had our Global Workers Conference, and I appreciated our speaker showing us how throughout the Bible, that's God's theme. He wants to bless the nations of the earth. And so we saw that so clearly. What I was especially moved by last weekend is when you guys were here, we saw lined up here our global workers who have been serving God all over the world. But there was one couple there. I'm, I, I have to keep the details very broad for their security. But we didn't, a month ago, we didn't think they'd be here. And the reason they were here is because their country had suddenly flipped in its view toward Christian workers. And so a couple of their colleagues had been taken in for interrogation. Uh, some of the wives were threatened. And they got word that the guy who was with us last week was next on the list. So they had 24 hours to get out of the country. And they'd lived there. They had a home, family. And so they had 24 hours to gather up what they could keep with them to get out of the country to the point where they couldn't fly out because this man's name would have been on watch lists uh, and wouldn't be allowed to escape, would have been arrested. So they got out of the country in two rental cars, wife, kid, in the first car, and then in case his name was on a watch list at the border, dad went second. And so if he got held back, the least wife and child were free. Guys, they escaped to a neighboring country, friends of theirs went there, and then the next day flew out of that country and are now back with us. What a story. What a kind of a modern day example of a guy like Noah. What was so cool for me was not just hearing the dramatics of that story, but to see the resolve and their passion to go back to the region. So they're, you know, saying things like, yeah, it's kind of unsettling. And the hardest things was actually not getting to say goodbye to some of their friends from another faith tradition that don't understand. Why did you have to leave us so abruptly? Why did you... And so uh, a couple things in these conversations with these global workers were first, how the gospel is making inroads in this very harsh country. And people are responding to Jesus because of the love of Jesus in such a hostile time in their country. Like that's beautiful. But what I also loved is their resolve. Because they said, well, we're supposed to stay and recover and have some time in the States, but we can't wait to get back. And they mentioned a neighboring country. We know the language. We, we know the people and their faith and their religion. We want to go there and continue to spread the gospel. Guys, that is an amazing picture of resilience, of depending on God, walking with God in the midst of, of some very tough times. So um, th- th- that's the life that God is calling us to live in a world that can be very hostile and very oppressive at times. But God sees you when you obey and trust him and follow him. So what we're going to do to wrap up this morning is, and we do this once a month as a church, is we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to remember what Jesus has done for us. And I love this phrase, like when you study somebody in the Bible, like Noah, sometimes the tendency is to like, oh, let's just be Noah. Let's be like Noah. Can I break your Noah bubble here for a second? Noah was the first guy called righteous in the Bible, but he's also, I'm sure it happened before, but Noah was the first guy it was mentioned that he got drunk and naked, okay? So like if you're trying to prop up Noah as your man, I'm going to be all Noah. It's like, 
That's not. Let's set those sights higher, okay? And so I love the phrase that Jesus is the better, and then fill in the blank of that Old Testament character. Jesus is the better Noah. So listen to this. Just like Noah obeyed God by climbing into a wooden boat to save a few, Jesus obeyed his father by climbing onto a wooden cross to save many. Jesus took our punishment, and he gives us his life. And we're going to celebrate that this morning when we take communion. Jesus asked us as his people to remember what he has done for us on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. It's like God rescued Noah through an ark and rescued the family around him. In a far greater way, Jesus stepped on that cross and offers to rescue any of us. That if we... <laughs> If we realize like, maybe this afternoon is the day that we would get judged, that we would appear before God, are we ready for that? And on our own, no one in this room is ready for that. But if you take God's offer to you from the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God, if you step into that moment of judgment and say, I did nothing <laughs> to deserve forgiveness, but I put my faith in Jesus Christ, who died and took away my sins. Um, that, that's the answer you need to be ready to give. And so as we celebrate communion, if you're serving, you can come up forward. For that, the ushers can come forward. I'm going to ask you to use this time to really reflect on the gospel about what Jesus has done for you. He died for you, and he took away your sins, and he has forgiven you, all right? So use this time to, to reflect on that. The bread represents the body of Jesus given for you. The cup represents the blood of Jesus uh, spilled for you. He did all of that uh, to forgive you so that you could stand before God in his name, in his work, in his righteousness, all right? So let me pray, and then we'll take this together. So Jesus, we thank you that you are far better than Noah, that you remembered us in our time of great need, that you stepped toward us to rescue us from our sin. So we, we reiterate that to you this morning, uh, that we trust you to be the one to forgive us, of our sins. And Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't understand that yet, may this be a time, not just where they go through a ceremony that maybe they don't understand, but may this be a time for them to truly think about who you are and the life that you offer them. And so Lord, use this time even as those of us who do know you, may this be a time for us to reflect, are we truly obeying you? Are we truly trusting you, walking with you in, in what could be hard situations in a tough time? But are we trusting you uh, like Noah did. But God, use this time to draw your people closer to you. In Jesus' name.